0: Hello, it's Dr Ken Gilman here. My website psychotropical.info has got a lot of information about these drugs called MAOIs and the subject of this little introduction today is to do with the diet that's fairly easy but necessary when you're taking MAOIs. This should be considered in the context of what's on my website, and there's information on the website and also the website refers to a number of scientific papers that I've published, so that's the background. Now, it's difficult to talk about tyramine in the diet, which is responsible for what's called the cheese reaction. Without mentioning that there is a lot of misinformation about, and unfortunately, a lot of standard texts, medical textbooks and other sources of information that would normally be considered reliable, have got a lot of incorrect information about diet and MAIs generally. The reason for that is really an accident of history, I won't go into it in detail, but nobody's taken much interest in these drugs for a few decades now, so a lot of the information has just been allowed to lapse. And more recent research has revealed a lot of useful new information. That particularly applies to tyramine in food. Now, it's just tyramine in food, which is the amino acid that's of concern. So let me say a few words about it. First of all, three important simple generalizations. The first one is that nowadays there are very, very few foods that have seriously high levels of tyramine, like they used to be in decades past. I've written a lot about that on the website so I won't go into it in detail here, but essentially it's to do with modern food handling practices. That's the first important thing to understand, so a lot of what was said in the past isn't really applicable now because tyramine levels in foods are so much lower now. Now the second point that goes very much hand in hand with that is there's Been an insufficient understanding, and this includes doctors, and an insufficient emphasis on the fact that the blood pressure elevation that can follow tyramine ingestion in food is a strictly dose related phenomenon. You have to eat quite a lot of tyramine to get a seriously high blood pressure for any length of time. The kinds of amounts of tyramine that are in a vast majority of all the foods we now eat in the western world might occasionally be capable of raising the blood pressure a little bit but not to a dangerous extent and not long enough to cause a significant risk of a stroke which is the theoretical risk. There's been a lot of concern about this over the years and people have really got quite worried. Now the third consideration which I think is very important is that the overconcern, and I think it is an overconcern, about episodes of elevated blood pressure from any cause, uh, but in this case from a tyramine reaction, is a bit out of proportion. It's very rare for a tyramine reaction to raise somebody's blood pressure to more than a couple of hundred now with the points I made before, and even with a considerable over-ingestion of tyramine, which is very difficult nowadays. The blood pressure is not likely to go beyond 250 millimetres of mercury systolic blood pressure. Now, those kinds of blood pressures of 200 to 250 are encountered regularly in everyday life. For instance, one big study looking at people who were jogging in a race of some sort showed that most of them had blood pressures well in excess of 200, which was sustained throughout the duration of the event. And I remember a friend of mine who was an elite sportsman, who was a doctor himself. Um, He, uh, in fact, played for the All Blacks rugby team, and he used to train very hard. And on the way to his medical clinic, uh, which was at the top of a useful hill, he, he used to you know, run hard up the hill. And he used to regularly measure his blood pressure when he got to the clinic, and it was usually around 300 millimetres of mercury. Uh, that was a long time ago, and I assure you he's still hale and hearty. I had a few drinks with him only a month or so ago. So, uh, and on the website and in what I've written, there are numerous other examples of uh, that sort of thing. Now, that's not to deny the fact that young men who go jogging sometimes have a catastrophic subarachnoid hemorrhage and have serious consequences and even die from it. But the point is they have that because they've got some kind of weakness in the blood vessels in the brain and sooner or later that's going to get weak enough and it's going to burst. Now, whether it bursts when you're doing one thing or doing another, you can argue is really neither here nor there. You can't live wrapped up in cotton wool for the whole of your life. So if that's going to happen, then it's going to happen sooner or later. Whether it happens when you're jogging or weightlifting or having a bit of an increase in blood pressure from tyramine, you can argue is really neither here nor there. Okay, so those are the three points I would make that it's relevant to understand because everybody who has an illness and takes tablets has to balance the risk of serious outcomes from the illness and of course in the case of depression that's general ill health, more frequent heart attacks, all sorts of general medical things, and of course a very significant lifetime risk of successfully committing suicide. overall lifetime risk, and this is something we all have to recognise and discuss properly, the overall lifetime risk with depression is something in the region of 10%. Now that's a very significant risk and it justifies serious treatment efforts to try to prevent it. So there's the illness and its morbidity and mortality, I guess, if you want to express that in medical terms. And then, quite apart from all of those risks and the 10% risk of suicide, there's the other major factor which many people listening to this will understand, and that is the immense amount of suffering that is caused by serious depression. I don't need to go into that in detail, but for those of you who haven't suffered from severe depression, don't understand about it, and that sadly includes some doctors I think, it really is important to understand that many people who've suffered from severe depression and other serious illnesses, painful conditions, cancer, all sorts of things, a majority of them would say without hesitation that serious depression was the most awful thing they ever experienced it really is terrible. So we mustn't forget that. So those various considerations which we've gone through are an important context to understanding the business of the uh, tyramine diet and the risks of the illness and the really very small risks of getting, (coughs) the really very small risks of uh, coming to any serious harm because of, the ingestion of excessive quantities of tyramine. So I think it really is very relevant for people considering this kind of treatment to have uh, a proper and comprehensive understanding of that. And I hope that explanation has helped. Now I want to move on now to giving a, a brief overview of the short tyramine and drug interactions abbreviated document which you can download from my website and I'm looking at the text here because of course I want to go through it in the order that I've put it in here and it's a long time since I did it so I can't remember it all. So the key key facts I've put at the beginning and the first one, it really is important for a great majority of people in the western world who eat a normal sensible diet and when i say sensible i mean not excessive quantities of things you know not guzzling a huge bar of chocolate or a, a half a kilo of cheese at one sitting and stuff like that people who eat a sensible healthy diet are very very unlikely indeed nowadays to encounter enough tyramine to have a serious reaction that's at all likely to do them any any harm That's the really simple first thing to understand. The second pretty simple thing to understand is that tyramine isn't present in any foods at excessive quantities except for those foods that have undergone a process of fermentation or maturation involving microorganisms. Nowadays It's very unusual for that to include foods that have been improperly handled. In other words, allowed to go off, to get smelly and rotten and so on and so on. Because it's that process of putrefaction, putrid. The word actually comes from the same word as the amino acid that causes that smell, which is putrescine. And things like putrescine and tyramine are the amino acids that accumulate in foods that have gone rotten. So that's why the word putrid exists. So that's rare nowadays. It can happen. I mean, for instance, foods like liver, if they're stored for an excessive length of time in a domestic refrigerator, especially one that isn't uh, properly um, minus four or less, and some domestic fridges are not very good at keeping things properly cold. That could accumulate enough tyramine to cause a bit of a reaction. It's unlikely to incu- accumulate a really large amount of tyramine, but I certainly have seen and heard of one or two cases where people have had uh, quite a healthy elevation of blood pressure because they've eaten a piece of liver that's been in the fridge for too long. So it is important. So it is important to realize that you have to pay proper attention to food hygiene and storage. But that said, the only foods that you're going to encounter nowadays that might possibly have higher levels of tyramine sufficient to cause trouble are foods that have been produced by a maturation process. So that includes the commonest ones, cheese, Fish sauces, especially ones from the East, uh, and uh, soy sauces. They're all foods that are produced by process of maturation. Now, the old idea that you know, cheddar cheese or whatever, blue cheese, etc., etc., had very high levels of tyramine is an oversimplification and is essentially not true. Nowadays, Almost all of these food making processes, whether it's the production of fermented salami type meats or soy sauce, fish sauce, whatever, are done in a way which minimizes the production of tyramine. So for tyramine to be produced, you don't just have to have the action of fermentation or, or maturation, yeah, you know, like with matured sausages or something. The organisms that perform that have to be organisms that are capable of producing tyramine. And in fact, most organisms aren't capable of producing large amounts of tyramine as a byproduct that accumulates in the food. And modern food processing science has in fact produced cultures for producing all of these things that don't produce tyramine. So most cheese makers, salami makers, soy sauce makers, etc. now deliberately use starter cultures for production which contain organisms which don't produce tyramine. So in actual fact, most of those things that you see nowadays have really quite low levels of tyramine in, um, usually well under 100 milligrams per litre or per kilogram, uh, which means that in normal sensible portions they're extremely unlikely to produce even a noticeable rise in blood pressure, never mind a potentially dangerous one. So that, I think, puts uh, modern foods into perspective in relation to a lot of those things. Care is still required, there's no question about that, but the point is it's not difficult and you have to be pretty cavalier and eat, Pretty large amounts of stuff where you're very unlucky to get a very high tyramine one before you're even going to get a a modest reaction in a vast majority of circumstances. So that puts it into perspective a bit, I think. Um, I've sort of half covered this already, but the next point is to emphasize that any elevation of blood pressure that results from ingestion of tyramine is strictly dose related. So the typical reactions that Doctors will see nowadays from people who've followed any half sensible advice like this are going to be quite mild elevations of uh, blood pressure, which don't last for more than an hour or so, two hours at the very most. Um, uh, and it's only if you eat very, very large amounts of tyramine, like probably a hundred milligrams of tyramine. That your blood pressure could go much much higher and stay higher for much longer and then potentially uh, cause a, a problem. But even then that's going to be unusual. Um, so let's talk about cheeses specifically. Uh, obviously there's detailed information about that uh, on my website and in the PDFs that you can download that explain it in detail. Uh, but the important thing to understand is that there are quite a lot of cheese types which which essentially are not made by a maturation process. Let's talk about mozzarella, for instance. That's not a matured cheese and it does not contain tyramine, nor does milk, of course, and nor does yogurt. Um, so If you have a pizza that's made in the traditional way with mozzarella cheese, which I believe I'm correct in saying is the traditional Italian cheese that's used on pizza, there's going to be no taramin in it, none. The toppings, perhaps if they were a matured fermented salami type product, might contain a little bit of taramin, but as I've already said, most fermented sausages, certainly in the European Union, and I dare say in North America to the extent that they're produced there, um, are going to be made using those same processes that minimise the production of tyramine. And there's a huge amount of data in the stuff that I've published about the uh, levels of tyramine in things like salami sausages. Um, and generally speaking, they're pretty low. And of course, unless you're very strange, y- y- you don't eat one whole huge salami sausage you slice it and put tiny thin slices across the pizza and there might be perhaps a dozen slices on a pizza Uh, and the total weight of all of those slices is unlikely to be more than what 50, 100 grams maximum Uh, and so the portion you're going to eat is going to have 25 grams of salami on it. Now even the most hairy salami from some little deli in the middle of country Italy or something is unlikely to have more than 500 milligrams per kilogram of tyramine. So work it out. You know The chance of eating more than 10 milligrams of tyramine from something like that is extremely low. So that again emphasizes the fact that if you're just a little bit conscious of these things and have a little bit of knowledge, you can quite easily steer around any potential difficulties and make sure that you don't Eat anything uh, that's got very large quantities of tyramine in it. Okay, what's the next point on here, cheeses? So yes, uh, yeah okay so, (coughs) okay so having just emphasized that uh, reactions are likely to be relatively mild and relatively short-lived, i.e. not more than two hours, usually often only an hour or so, What that inevitably uh, leads on to is the reason behind the firm advice I give that's contrary to what's generally been said over the last few decades about what should be done if somebody does have a reaction of increased blood pressure because they've eaten something. And the answer is nothing. because the duration and extent of the reaction is so unlikely to be sufficient to cause a serious problem that trying to intervene and lower people's blood pressure by giving them nifedipine or something like that is actually quite possibly going to do more harm than good. The details about that are again in the things I've published and on the website, so I won't go into them in depth here but it is important to understand that. Nowadays most people who are admitted to hospital with severe hypertension are not generally given aggressive treatment with drugs like that. The experts in those fields uh, say that you shouldn't reduce people's blood pressure in less than 24 to 48 hours. So uh, rapid reduction of blood pressure is basically not practiced in modern medicine, it should be a careful and gradual process. So I think if you understand those things, you understand why in a vast majority of cases, almost always in fact, it's better not to do anything except keep calm, relax and take a benzodiazepine. For the kinds of syndromes that are treated in emergency rooms and casualty departments and such like, whatever they're caused by, whether it's serotonin toxicity or the ingestion of large amounts of ice, amphetamine, or something like this. One of the commonest treatments that's used now is to sedate people heavily with a large dose of benzodiazepine, a Valium-type drug, in other words. So almost certainly the safest thing to do, if people feel impelled to do anything at all, is to take a good-sized dose of benzodiazepine and keep calm. Um, I don't think I need to say a great deal more about the other points in this key fact sheet. Uh, oh yes, oh perhaps I will. The variability of sensitivity to tyramine. I mean. It's the same for everything in biological systems. It doesn't matter whether it's the dose of a drug. With a great majority of the drugs that we use, if you take the real extremes You you take a thousand people and look at the extremes in a large group like that, you'll probably find that the dose that's applicable, the lowest dose for a small percentage of people at that end of the scale, is one-tenth of the dose that's needed for people at the opposite end of the scale. So roughly a tenfold variation in the dose of a great majority of drugs between the absolute maximum and minimum that's appropriate for different people. And The same applies to tyramine, perhaps not quite to that extent, although the data on this is not that extensive, so we can't say definitively. But the the same ballpark uh, figures seem to apply, uh, and there's an approximately fivefold variation in people's sensitivity to tyramine. So it may be that there will be a few people who are so sensitive to tyramine that even ten milligrams of tyramine Uh, will cause them to have a significant elevation of blood pressure. I say significant elevation. I don't mean necessarily a dangerous elevation, but a measurable elevation that's significant and might even produce a bit of a headache for an hour or so. But that's exceptional. It, It seems, for all the data we've got now, and again, I've reviewed that in my various scientific publications and on the website, it seems that most people, probably need to ingest at least 25 milligrams of tyramine whilst they're on an MAOI like Parne, channel before they get a serious elevation of blood pressure. That's a fair bit of tyramine, and there are certainly quite a significant proportion uh, who can ingest even more than that and still not get much of a blood pressure elevation. So it is important to see these things in perspective and to remember that there is a significant variation uh, between different people in their sensitivity to tyramine. People who are very sensitive to tyramine may well be helped uh, by taking a noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor uh, like one of the tricyclic antidepressants uh, because one or two of the tricyclics are fairly potent noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors, uh, especially desipramine and nortriptyline. So if you take one of those drugs, that will definitely uh, make you less sensitive to tyramine. And in fact, a decent sized dose of something like desopramine will virtually make you immune to any blood pressure elevation whilst you're taking tyramine. Um, Blood pressure monitoring. I keep going on about this. I'm a little surprised that more doctors don't do it regularly. It's my very firm opinion that it's smart and worthwhile to regularly measure your sitting and standing blood pressure for a few days before you start so you've got a baseline and uh, after you've started these drugs for the purpose of monitoring their effect and helping to make decisions about the increase or decrease of dosage depending on the effect and side effects and everything. But also, of course, if you're used to measuring your blood pressure, then it means that if you do think you're having any kind of reaction because you've eaten a little bit too much cheese or something, you can measure it very easily and quickly and see for yourself and see whether it's continuing to go up and up and up, up up and up up to levels, which, as I've said, is extremely unlikely, Uh, or whether um, it's just going up a little bit and going down again very quickly. So I I think nowadays that the, the cost of these automatic electronic blood pressuring machines, blood pressure measuring machines is so relatively low compared to the other costs of of treatment and illness that everybody should consider uh, having one and using it regularly. Uh, All right, that's the introduction to tyramine uh, and I'll talk a bit more about other aspects of those kinds of things on another occasion. If you have found this podcast useful and it's a good way for you to get information about the sorts of things that are on my website, then uh, do sign up so that we can automatically send you notifications of the new podcasts.